the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Difference Makers. Welcome. I'm Mike Lee, Director of Local Ministries for True Talk 800, now on 106.3 FM in East Portland and Vancouver, 93.9 KPDQ, AM 860, The Answer, KPAM, La Patrona 1640, 93.1 93.1 El Rey and 104.1 The Fish. And I'd love to talk with you about getting more people back to your church, sharing about your ministry through our free online church directory and our church service live stream directory, expanding your ministry or business beyond your walls, establishing yourself as an authority in your field, and becoming more known through radio, building awareness of your company or outreach by hosting our events at your location at no risk to you, Marketing your message or brand directly to your target audience through the latest and most powerful online tools of Salem Surround. And most importantly, if your ministry leader or your pastor could use a phone call, a word of encouragement, a cup of coffee, or a connection to others, please email me at mikelee at kpdq.com. That's spelled M-I-K-E-L-E-E at kpdq.com. Our very special guest will be serving as keynote speaker He's on the board of directors and is a mentor at the Christian Culinary Academy in Cannon Beach. All the details about the annual conference online at ChristianChefs.org. That's ChristianChefs.org. And the Christian Chefs International Conference is going to be held this coming Monday through Thursday, March 24th. So I'd like to welcome the artist formerly known as the Galloping Gourmet and keynote speaker, Graham Kerr. How are you today, sir? I am splendid, Mike. As I shared with you a moment or two ago, I've had my purple porridge for the day, and therefore I'm dangerous. So what makes the porridge purple? I'm curious and somewhat frightened to ask. Oh, antioxidants that come from a myriad of berries, all that come from my area in the Skagit Valley, um, just north of you. And uh, that's stirred into a regular porridge and turns it purple with a good dollop of yogurt in the middle of it. And then I eat it boiling hot with the ice cold of the yogurt as a kind of sensual, you know, contest in my mouth. And with, with a whole bunch of nuts that are in it as well. I cannot tell you how wonderfully invigorating <laughs> it is. Grand yeah. Care, you make even porridge sound delightful. So are these berries <laughs> a seasonal thing or are they fairly decent all year round? You know, I have mine from Costco, if they should excuse the, the, the commercial plug. And they have one called triple berries, and they're very inexpensive way of getting frozen berries frozen at their peak and then delivered to me in a little icy bag. And I use that um, one bag full, about four pounds uh, a week. Yeah, that's it. Well, that's wonderful, Graham. So in radio, there was a DJ named Jim Kerr. 
There was uh, Steve Kerr, who is the coach of the Golden State Warriors, and one with Michael Jordan on the Chicago Bulls. And you all spell your name the same as K-E-R-R, but you pronounce it Care. Do I have that correct? You do. And we fought people for 400 years for mispronouncing the name. It, it's, it's, the <laughs> Scottish, it's the Scottish pronunciation. Kerr is the Irish and Carr is the British um, or English. So there you go. But I haven't killed anybody recently and uh, n- neither do I insist. You know, I just, Graham is fine for me. Graham it is then. So, Graham, let's talk just a little bit about the big event, the Christian Chefs International Annual Conference in Cannon Beach this Monday through Thursday. And I've been able to go and see you both on the big screen, but also in person with my dear friend, Program Director Justin Mansfield. And we love going out to Cannon Beach because it's just a wonderful experience. So can you give us your elevator pitch for this annual conference held in Cannon Beach by Christian Chefs International? Why do people go and where are they coming from? Their invitation goes out worldwide. And in fact, it is international and, and can be known as worldwide. Now, the people who can travel nowadays, it's going to become easier, we hope. Um, but at the moment, it's somewhat constricted in terms of who will be able to make it. I know some people are, are definitely coming up from California and uh, elsewhere around the country. Um, we are in <laughs> Jesus says it really well when he says that he is in the midst of us as one who serves. And um, and this is what is the common factor in those people who would turn up at the conference. They are people who serve. They know that they serve. That's their job, to serve. And they want to serve in the way that they hope that Jesus would serve. It's a very pliable, very honest, very tender, uh, non-demanding um, quality that I simply love. I'm so glad to hear that, Graham. So for people who might be in between jobs or looking at career choices, all the years you've been in the culinary arts, what kinds of personality traits do you think are the best fit for someone who'd like to get into cooking or perhaps the restaurant or catering industries? Well, I think it's usually grandma. (laughs) Um, Grandparents um, uh, of a certain age used to cook in whilst looking after grandson or granddaughter. And that grandson or granddaughter was treated to a, a chair in the kitchen and would watch grandma uh, whipping up something. And uh, the number of people that I have found have got an inbuilt um, desire to serve through food um, had this uh, energy that seemed to come from grandparents. Now, and I'm sure that at some stage that grandparent effect is going to go away because that's the way that our, our lives are lived. But my uh, my understanding from all of those that I have talked to very personally is that it's usually grandparents, sometimes parents, who went out of their way to cook something which was wonderful, was a sensual 
experience eating it, having seen how it was made, uh, that was lodged in their thinking, I could do something like this myself, and I could be getting somebody else to be as enthusiastic about it as I am, you see? And that's a way of being accepted, appreciated, and quote-unquote loved to some degree. Now, it's a problem for some people who get it as a love substitute, that they're so eager to get the, 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 the sensual bombardment taking place and, the, and people just saying how lovely and what a brilliant cook you are, da-da-da-da-da. You can actually rest in that and do that only. But where you are simply handing over nourishment that delights, when you put nourish and delight together, you get, you get to cook in a way which also nourishes and doesn't malnourish. I, I think that's important. And that's what the conference is all about, trying to find out how to do that. To nourish and to delight. I like that, yes. Graham. So, Graham Kerr, who got you into cooking in the first place? My dad um, got a hold of my ear when I was about 12. And so it was very embarrassing. I was standing in the, in the bar, in the cocktail bar of the, of the hotel that he managed, a very upscale hotel, I might add. And I was talking to the customers, and they were somewhat amused by this 12-year-old who could chatter on with them in a sort of adult way. I was a, I'm an only child brought up in the hotel business, so uh, I, I'm an unusual guy. guy you know. So I was there, and here's this fingers around my ear, and he pulls me out of the cocktail bar, my boy. You are not to talk to the customers in the cocktail party. You are not allowed in there. Come with me. So he led me into the kitchen, said to the chef, who, who is from Provence, in South France, um, my son has been in the cocktail bar with the customers. He needs to be in your kitchen. Can you give him something to do? And the chef said, monsieur, I was, uh, as a child, raised by my father to be a cook, and uh, it will be my privilege, like déjà vu, to teach the young master. Um, <laughs> so he made a box for me so I could stand on it and reach the counter properly, gave me a little knife and told me, this is how you chop. And... Um, I was in that kitchen for three years. That was where I played. And uh, by the time I'd grown up um, to about and five, 10, and 11, I could reach all the knobs and everything else. And I was doing whatever that kitchen did, and I could do it. And eventually, you didn't need the stool anymore, I'm sure. Oh, no, it wasn't a stool. It was an orange box in the days when they made <laughs> orange boxes with wood. So I remember it very clearly. And I remember when I learned to chop really fast, um, he would bring the, a, a new chef who was added to the, the, the brigade. He would have me said, come along, come along and see what the little master is doing. I think that's what he was calling me, but whatever. I, I, was, the, I was the mascot in, in the kitchen, definitely. Oh, how wonderful. So once this foundation 
was set up as a child, Graham. When did you decide that you wanted to be more creative? Were you just soaking all of this information in like a sponge? Well, actually, I went from the kitchen to the dining room. And in the dining room, I was given the chance to be the chef d'orange, which is a word for you have a trolley and you have a lighted flambe lamp on it and you have a pan and you have some ingredients and you cook for people at the table side. Um, Sometimes, um, you you know, it's a meat dish. but most famously, the crepe Suzette is the one which is flamed and everything else. And little pancakes in an orange and lemon sauce with Grand Marnier. And, and that's uh, sort of a liqueur. And um, so I remember my first couple, just a nice young couple on a date, I think. And they wanted this crepe Suzette. And I told them the story about it. And I made it. Um, and they ate it, and they liked it, and they gave me a huge tip, which was wonderful. So that established in me the fact that I could cook for someone and tell them a story at the same time and ha- and serve it to them and see them eat it. And then, then there, there was that rush of pleasure of having served someone in a creative way. So, um, and that, if you look at the old Galping Gourmet programs, you, you would see that I told a story. I, I would always tell everything that was going on. And then I would serve it to someone out of the audience who would then eat it. That's exactly what happened to me in that dining room when I was 15 years old. Graham, were your parents a bit of storytellers? Because you're an amazing listen. I could just sit down <laughs> and hear you talk about changing attire and probably be enthralled by you. So, so who gave you this strength that you have? Do you know, that's a very good question. And I think it has to be my wife, Trina. Um, Trina is an actress and, uh, and, and a J. Arthur Rank starlet. That's, that's a British, um, um, you know, uh, film studios in those days. Um, and uh, we met at 10 when, when uh, I was actually the older man at 11 and she was 10. Um, at school and uh, and then off she ran and then suddenly she comes back into my life again and uh, just with one evening meal with her and the next day I proposed and she accepted it was it was a done deal from the moment we were 10 and 11 so she said to me you have to be the most boring man in the entire world (laughs) <laughs> and 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 you need to do something about it. This is when I first went on television in New Zealand, and and I said, well, if you're so clever, why don't you produce it? Oh, all right, I will. So she trots off down to New Zealand House at television. And by the way, the television only came on at uh, at six o'clock in the evening and went off at ten. So. And then when I started, there were only 50 television sets in the country. So let, let, let me put that for you. And I was positioned between Peyton Place and the Avengers um, on, on a Tuesday night. That was at 8 o'clock prime time uh, in, in that 6 to 10 slot. And, um, and I was boring. Um, I was boring because I was 26 years old. And I was worried that somebody out there knew more than I knew. 
And uh, even though I knew quite a lot, and I, I knew that they knew more than me and were prepared to sit there and scoff and, and, and criticize and judge what I was doing. So I went to the most enormous lengths to do it right, to do it exactly as it should be done. And nobody could criticize me. And, um, and so I was boring. <laughs> it was boring. And um, so she took over and I was no longer boring. I did what I was told. I told the stories. I told mercilessly poor jokes on the program, which were frightful jokes. Um, and people apparently loved it. So there you are. So good job by your wife, Trina, pulling the most boring man in the entire world, as she put it. Yes. And yes. developing him over time into the Galloping Gourmet. And now you're serving as a mentor and on the board of directors of Christian Culinary Academy, which is hosting its annual conference in Cannon Beach, Monday, March 21st through Thursday, March 24th. I'll put all the details on the Difference Makers page at truetalk800.com, so make sure to check out the website, christianchefs.org. That's christianchefs.org. More with Graham Care next on Difference Makers. Welcome back to Difference Makers. Mike Lee here with the artist formerly known as the Galloping Gourmet. He now serves on the board of directors and is a mentor at Christian Culinary Academy. Graham Kerr, welcome back, sir. Thank you so much. Good to be back. I love how your wife, Trina, inspired you to become more exciting. And it's funny you mentioned that you, you got a primetime TV slot on a Tuesday night at 8 p.m. between Peyton Place and the Avengers, which I'll have to clarify to today's audience, is not Captain America, Hulk, and Thor. It was John Steed and Emma Peel. <laughs> it was indeed. It was indeed. Um, and what, what, what placement. I mean, really, what placement. And I got to be personality of the, wor- uh, of, of, the um, uh, of the year in New Zealand, which is called the Penguin, <laughs> the Penguin Award. It's all, it's all too amusing. Julia Child said to me, when did you start on television? <laughs> and I said, I said, 1960. No, you didn't. I was first. I said, no, you were not first. I was first in the 60s. Well, where was that? I said, New Zealand. Oh, that, that doesn't count. <laughs> So I'm picturing Emmys and Oscars and Golden Globes. What indeed does the Penguin Award look like? A penguin. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's so funny. Yes. I'm not sure whether it was hiding an egg between its feet uh, or not, but, um, so, but that didn't show. So anyway, um, and, and I, I was critically awful. Um, when they, during my, my, my vain attempt to, to, at being an expert. Um, and it was Trina who brought her acting friends from New Zealand Broadcasting um, up to um, my house, um, my, my front room of our house, which I converted into a kitchen. Um, 
And uh, so I had to do the rehearsals in front of these ribald, you know, um, expat um, British actors and actresses who would yell insults at me and everything else to get me to soften up somehow. So I, I, I went through boot camp that's in New Zealand. Yeah. Well, that's for sure. It sure sounds like you enjoyed the personality aspect and performing as the Galloping Gourmet. Did that take long or was it pretty instantaneous once you got on TV? I have a love-hate relationship as I look back at that time. Um, because, you know, it, we went from New Zealand to Australia, Australia to, um, to worldwide. And um, it, was, it was all stratospheric. It, it, it happened suddenly. And it was like a rocket going up, not a plane. And if you can imagine a ladder without rungs, um, I was literally within within months was hung out at the top rung of my ladder um, without any any way of getting down. Um, and I had left my character at at ground zero at, at the bottom of the ladder, with, with which I was comfortable and a reasonably pleasant person. Um, and I was therefore left with nothing but personality hanging on to the top rung. And my character was way below. And, uh, and so I ruptured my character uh, by my personality and, and did harm. And uh, so I harmed people. So I, I, we have a way of using the word sin, and I convert that to the word harm. So I harmed people, and I'm dreadfully sorry that I did. Um, and I have repented for that and been forgiven for that, and I've been to the individuals that I harmed and asked for forgiveness. Um, and they were gracious enough to do that, and the Lord moved through them to do it. So I, I, I had, that's why I have this love-hate relation. Did I enjoy it? You ask me, Mike? Yes. When I ran in and jumped and, and, and get, got my glass of wine and, and, and meted, met, met this amazing full audience every night, you know, people clapping like mad and yelling, and I jumped over my chair, in which they loved to see me do, and I told these silly jokes and cooked this fabulous food and uh, served it to somebody, and they loved it and smacked their mouth, and people would lift their lips in the audience and would would you enjoy that? Of course you'd enjoy that. It's marvelous. But I went through nine years with my darling Trina, who I had harmed. And she didn't have the tools to forgive me. So whilst I was buoyed at the time and accepted and loved uh, as a personality, here was my broken character that my wife knew about and couldn't forgive. So it, and I tried the best I could to do the best I could so that she would approve somehow of me and give me an A+. She used to grade me from C to A+, for every show I did. So that was not a happy time, but it had these bumps of pleasure at being accepted publicly. Does that make any sense? Oh, it makes all the sense in the world, Graham. Whether we're introverted or extroverted, 
I believe everyone loves to feel appreciated, like they matter, yeah. like something they've thought or something they've said is of value to others. Yes, big time. Big time. I think there's nothing like, like that. And I think the biggest time of my life of ever being accepted that I have as a golden moment in my life was when I'm shouting at the ceiling, having been to a dinner uh, three days before, where I sat with some members of a missions committee. I mean, I, I didn't go to church, I didn't any, but I wound up in this missions club and heard these people talking about a $600 amount that they'd raised for the starving people in Ethiopia or Somalia, at, at, sorry, at that stage. And I was so taken with their intensity that I actually cried. I actually cried and I thought, there's hope for this world because of love like this. Now, two days later, I'm on my knees at my very fancy hotel suite, shouting at the ceiling, what do I have to say to you to get to know you like Trina does? And the very next words out of my aggravated, shouting voice was, Jesus, I love you. And uh, he loved me right back. I can only tell you that I got a hug at that moment of someone who says, and I loved you always and always will. So that, for me, you know, that simply spun me on my access and showed me a different way to live. Graham Kerr met his wife, Trina, when they were in school. He was 11 and she was 10. And it was years after you became married, Graham, and the Galloping yeah. Gourmet went viral as a television program worldwide that you got on your knees in this hotel room and you wanted what Trina had. Yes. Yeah, because she'd forgiven me. I had gone nine and a half years, Mike, without being forgiven by a, by a woman who was being destroyed by, by this lack of forgiveness. She was taking seven different kinds of medication a day, up to 60 milligrams of Valium. And on the day when she went to be baptized, thinking the water might do her some good, as a result of a small black inner city church that interceded and prayed for her for three months. The last month they prayed and fasted 24 hour a day, never leaving her unattended. At the end of that month, she went to this little church in Bethlehem, Maryland, where the pastor's name was Friend, and she was baptized and saw a vision of a radiant man in front of her who reached and touched her heart. She went home, she threw away every one of her pills that day, that night, and never went back and absolutely had the tools to forgive me. Now, I know that sounds a bit much to some people, that that, that all happened just at one moment, but it did. And, uh, and that got, <laughs> how wouldn't that get your attention? But she decided, First Peter 3, that says that an, an, an unbelieving husband is not going to be led by the words that she could come up with. She was going to keep her mouth shut about the entire experience 
and agree with our little maid Ruthie, who had come, really was a missionary and wanted to serve in Haiti, but came to serve us instead. And actually, she was the one who brought this small black congregation into our lives. Um, and she, she would agree with, 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 with Ruthie that I would be saved, but she didn't know how. She just didn't want to be because of her. And, um, and so I was completely um, uh, 1,800 miles away from her on that night and with, no, with nothing except the evidence of three months of watching the love of my life become a completely different person. So it was night and day when Trina gave her heart to the Lord. She was destined, uh, she, she came to the Lord on the 17th of December, 1974. She was going to go to a mental institution for an indeterminate period of time in January in order to be able to be weaned off all of this adverse medication. She was going away for a month or two, whatever it took, to gradually tail it off. She tipped that down the drain that day she was touched, and she was healed. By a black congregation friend named Ruthie in Maryland, of all places. Yeah, that's right. And Maryland and and, in a little town called Bethlehem. (laughs) God's got a really good sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) My thoughts entirely, yes. So, Graham, is that where the whole forgiveness theme really captivated your heart after seeing Trina finally, years later, be able to forgive you? Yes. Um, It's never easy, is it? You know, if it was easy, everybody would jump on the bandwagon. There's there's a scripture in Jeremiah, and not, not my favorite prophet, but he does say this, stand at the crossroads. And look and inquire after the ancient paths and take the path that leads to good and walk in it and you will find rest for your soul. It's taken me 47 years to find that road and walk in it. And um, I'm going to, at Cannon Beach, in the time that I'm going to share with the students, I'm, I'm going to walk um, to the 16, the Jeremiah 616. It just happened that I made notes, and it came, and I, I numbered them, and, and there are 16 steps that I've taken in this walk so far. Um, I, when I was in the British Army, we used to have to do 30-inch strides, we, and, and they, they were measured with a, with, with a, a divider. Um, and so I know that I can go 40 feet in 16 steps, and that's about the size of the room in which I should be speaking. And I want to walk with the, my audience that night, or with my friends that night, I'd prefer to call them friends. And I want to walk through this, this desire I have to walk towards good. I'm going to die one day. That's, that is no doubt about it. It's actually sooner now than it used to be. <laughs> That's no doubt about it. But I do want to be caught walking as I do that. 
one way or another, I would like to continue to walk. And I have a feeling that Jesus is saying, walk with me, not walk to me. God is the one that's good. You can walk with me towards that end aim. Um, and, and you'll find a rest for your soul in the middle of all of the catastrophes of the day. And I have. He came to fame as the Galloping Gourmet, and now Graham Care serves on the Board of Advisors as a mentor for Christian Culinary Academy. He'll be live in Cannon Beach at their annual conference Monday, March 21st through Thursday, March 24th next week. All the information's on the Difference Makers page at truetalk800.com and also at the website christianchefs.org. That's christianchefs.org. More from Grand Care next on Difference Makers. You're listening to Difference Makers. I'm Mike Lee, and Graham Kerr came to fame as the Galloping Gourmet worldwide on television. Today, he serves on the board of directors at Christian Culinary Academy. He's also a mentor and a keynote speaker at this year's annual conference, Monday, March 21st through Thursday, March 24th. I'll leave all of the details about the conference and about Christian Chefs International and Christian Culinary Academy on the website, truetalk800.com, on the Difference Makers page. And Graham, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Just entertain and encourage and enlighten us. And I found it funny that earlier you mentioned the term ground zero in our conversation. And something very, very interesting happened. uh, Well, it was on September 10th of the year 2001. So can you tell us about Menu 2? Yes, indeed. It was one day before the planes hit our tower. And um, I was in, New, uh, in Washington, D.C., speaking to the, um, uh, the American Restaurant Association. And um, they were very enthusiastic about some, uh, a survey and a test run that we had done of something called Menu 2. Um, Menu 2 was something that I began in 1975 uh, um, at at Cornell University. I was a visiting professor at their famous hotel school there. And I was introducing to my students the idea of a menu which would help um, the diner to make a valued decision about the kind of food that they were eating. Menus do that. They allow you to see what's in a dish. Um, you know that it could be pork chops with some candied um, pears and uh, and a yog- uh, and a wine wine sauce. And you look at that and you think, yes, I, I like that. You look at the price then. That's when your brain switches from <clears throat> the sensual enjoyment factor to the actual <laughs> uh, rudimentary business of the price. And you decide, $17, yeah, okay. Um, And then you order. It's over. That's how you use the menu. 
But in this case, there is a second menu, and the wait staff says, we have menu two if you'd like to see it. Whereupon somebody who doesn't know anything about menu two might ask, well, what's menu two? And the wait staff says, well, it's exactly the same menu that I've given you with that, that one you're holding now, except this one gives, in addition, a little range of numbers which are the nutritional and content of every dish on the menu, in case any member of your party would like to see that. Well, in the test run which we made of several um, restaurants in the Spokane area um, uh, as a test, uh, 50% of the dining public wanted to see that second menu. And a good percentage of those who looked at those numbers, which looked like a telephone number after the price. That, that's where it was placed on. The, and in, in, on just, it wasn't, it didn't say to you calories and saturated fat and carbohydrate. It was in a certain line, like a telephone number is. So, and there was a key at the bottom of the menu, which showed, showed you which numbers followed which. But so a person with diabetes would be able to see how many carbohydrates there were in that dish and be able to make a value judgment about how much insulin to have if they, if they were on insulin. It, it was a wonderful opportunity that I started in 75, continued it at the CIA in, in New, at the Culinary Institute of America in New York, um, and continued it in Johnson and Wales as well, where I've taught in all of these universities and settings. And so it's obvious that I should want to present this also to my dear friends, these wonderful students at the Culinary Academy in, in, in Cannon Beach. And it's my, it's my last hurrah to be able to present that to them so that, and to tell them it's a way to nourish people and delight them at the same time. You can build dishes which have wonderful numbers that will be really good for people and you've developed and created these things to be able to be luscious and delightful at the same time without wounding and harming them. And, um, so, and it, it's gone, as far as I know, it's gone nowhere. It's a great, I, I'm, a, I'm a runner with a baton in one hand, and I keep on running around the track looking for somebody with an outstretched hand in tomb. I can place this idea. So that's, that's menu two. That's a fascinating concept, and I think it's brilliant. And the timing was just horrific. Well, how excited did the American Restaurant Association get when you presented your Menu 2 idea to them on the day before 9-11? They literally clapped their hands together and said, that's what we need. That's what our industry needs. We'll, we'll put it out throughout all the states tomorrow. And tomorrow the plane hit. And that was the end of it. So the dynamic changed because the American Restaurant Association then had to prioritize on hopefully keeping restaurants in business, right? Oh, yes. You know, the enemy now was the fact that people were not going out to eat. That was the enemy. It was cash flow. 
the enemy beforehand was that we as a people had simply grown too big for our boots. Our, our, our behavior was 80% of the chronic diseases in the United States of America today is, is behavior. 20% is probably genetic uh, or other factors, but 80% is, is, is of our underlying health problems that have caused nearly a million of us to die. Come on, my friend, we are a sick people and we have been indulging in our abundance and enjoying it thoroughly. And the restaurant business is a leader in that respect. And if we nourished and, and delighted people, we would take them on a different pathway, which is now being taken. It is but we still need the tools by which to help to change. And we need to see some numbers. And when I can see that the bluefish tuna is 380 calories, and I can see that the, the, the steak and, uh, with, with the beef and, and, and lobster tail is, is 1,020, it's, it's, and I, I can compare those two things. I would want the, the beef but I'm going to have the yellowfin tuna and I enjoy it because it's a really good dish and I, I'm pleased with myself and I go home and I haven't done myself harm. I wanted to have that so that a customer goes to that restaurant and tells her, you've got to go to that restaurant. They've got menu too. And then you can make a choice and they've got a couple of desserts, a couple of main dishes and a couple of early things. And if you add them all up together, it's less than a thousand calories. It's really a good place to go. And that's what people were saying at the time. And that's what they thought was the biggest single thing on the horizon was to get people well again. They understood that at that stage. And then, then it became, what do we get? How do we get people back into the restaurant? And which is exactly where we are today. How do we get people back into restaurants? I think especially after coming in off of a couple of years worth of pandemic, Graham, that we go out of our way to try to support local restaurants, mom and pop type places. And I've got nothing yes. but good things to say about some franchises like in Salem, Oregon, where I live. I've never had a bad experience at Olive Garden or Applebee's or Panera Bread. However, it's the locals that have the most difficulty surviving times like this. So we want to go out and try more restaurants and locals than franchises as a result because they've, they've got deeper pockets. They're better equipped to survive rough times like today. But what's interesting about what you were saying about menu two is the fact that it's kind of a sermon when you think about it because we don't want to see our sin. We don't want to hear that what we're overindulging on at our favorite restaurant is not good for our bodies. So can you talk to us about choices? You see, if I look at a menu and I see a, a, a clam chowder um, in that creamy um, uh, white sauce and, uh, you know, and, and I see that there is a, a, a bowl full or, or a cup full, it's usually served bowl or cup. Now, if alongside that, I can see 1,010 calories is the actual content of a well-made Boston clam chowder for the bowl, 1,010 calories. 
And the cupful of it is usually about 400, all right? It's between three and 400. Um, I'm going to think twice about that. I really am if I'm going to have a main dish, which if I look at the um, range of, of, of the, the values for that main dish, you know, here, here's the point. If I put those numbers on the main menu, that's so that I pick up that menu and I've got to confront those menus. I don't like that. I don't want to be. I've come out to, to celebrate, not medicate. And I don't want to see those numbers. I don't want to have the harm that could be done to me shoved in my face. Right? But when I say, when it said to me, if you would like to see the numbers, then, and I say to myself, I really should look at the numbers, perhaps. And you, you say, yes, you've crossed the Rubicon then. You've, you've, you, you ha you're looking for the numbers now and, and understanding them. Now your, I, your brain, which is not just lusting after the sensuality of the dish, etc., you are now balancing that against your known need for your own health. And therefore, you can make that judgment call and make it and be pleased with that provision, actually grateful to that restaurant for caring enough about you. Now, I'm going to tell you this. The average chef that I know hasn't got a clue what those numbers are. He doesn't have a clue. He's there to get you to come back again and to delight you in such an that he doesn't have to worry about nourishing you. If he can delight you, he's going to get you back. But when you get the, actually have the numbers on there, he knows what that is now, and so do you. And so you become a team with that restaurant of looking after the future health of this nation. So just to clarify, Graham Care, we're not suggesting stopping cold turkey from eating out at nice restaurants or completely radicalizing our diet as much as altering the way we eat with little changes, right? Yeah, and I want I want the chefs of today to to when they I, I want them to nourish and delight. I want them to consider the health of those people that they're serving and to do the very best that they can to create dishes that do that. But I want them to continue to be in business. <clears throat> and, and to do that, they're going to have to have the big pizzas and the big steaks and all the rest of it. Um, but in that menu, they can have two appetizers, two main dishes and two desserts, which are reasonable and moderate and attractive and well done. And don't have to have the appellation that says heart healthy or healthy food or whatever. No. No, that, that's, a, that's a kiss of death. Everybody that I've ever met who put heart healthy on the menu just watches that, that dish not sell. That we have to find these for ourselves. This is a self-realization. I'm not as well as I could be. I'm going to go out to eat. I'm, I'm going to go to that restaurant that has menu too because, hey, I can actually choose what I do myself. I can choose. 
and I've got the tools by which to do it. Trina did not have the tools to forgive me. We do not have the tools on an average menu to make a sensible decision about our health and the future. We need it. Graham Care, thanks so much for sharing your life experience, not only as the artist formerly known as the Galloping Gourmet, but also as a college professor and now serving on the board of advisors as a mentor at the Christian Culinary Academy in Cannon Beach, which hosts its annual conference Monday through Thursday. That's the 21st through 24th of March. All the details are on the Difference Makers page at truetalk800.com. And congratulations that you're having a movie made about yourself, Graham. We're looking forward to seeing you next week. Oh, I shall look forward to it. And anybody who's hearing that you've been suffering these bombardment of little molecules hitting your ear, that, that's what sine waves are. Um, if you turn up, we could have a real time of meeting, and I would love that. Looking forward to seeing okay. Graham Care at Christian Culinary Academy's annual conference in Cannon Beach, Monday through Thursday. All the details at their website, christianchefs.org. So thank you so much again, Graham Care. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for listening to Difference Makers. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.